This morning's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Before we jump into our sermon today, I want to say a word and also say a word of prayer over a very special group of people. I think that God works in our world in numerous ways, using different people, different events, different things to accomplish his will. And I think there's a particular group of people that God is really using right now as his instruments of hope and healing in our world, especially during this difficult time of pandemic. And that is our healthcare workers and our medical workers, all of our doctors and nurses and assistants and everyone else who works in that field who are on the front lines, literally on the front lines, dealing with these challenges that they didn't necessarily sign up for, and yet they are the ones who are trying to be a blessing to us, taking care of us. And I just want to pause in this moment and acknowledge that as something that is, like Dan said, a gift from God. God gives us good gifts. And I think those people in our lives are good gifts. And so whether you're here and you're a medical or a healthcare worker or you're watching online and that's what you do, I just want to say on behalf of this congregation, thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate what you're doing. We know that it's not easy. And we probably know that in many ways you feel unseen or unappreciated. And there are probably people who act in ways that show you the opposite of appreciation. And we see that. And we see you. And we just want to acknowledge and affirm what you're doing and who you are and say thank you. So thank you so much. I think the best way we can say thanks is to offer a, a prayer of blessing on your behalf. So let's pause now and pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the people in our lives, all the people, even those who are challenges, those who are gifts and blessings, those who encourage us, but also those who make us better just by who they are and what they say. And Father, as we think about the people in our lives, Father, we think about those who are on the front lines of healthcare right now in the medical field. Father, I, I thank you for them. I thank you for their hearts. I thank you for their eyes who see the best in those people that they are taking care of. I thank you for their training, for their willingness to work so hard, to put themselves at risk. I thank you for the way that they are instruments of yours, of healing, of hope. And Father, I pray for a sense of renewal among them, for a sense of rest among them. I pray for your richest blessings for them. And together, Father, we give thanks. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Maybe you heard the story about a prince who came under a spell so that he could only say one word per year. But he could bank those words, and so if he didn't speak for two years, at the end of that time, he could say two words. And so one day he met this beautiful girl, and he fell in love. 
And he went two years without speaking because he wanted to say to her, my darling. So after those two years, he was ready to say that to her, but then he realized that he wanted to tell her more. He wanted to tell her that he loved her. I love you. That's three more years. And so he didn't speak for three more years. After five years, he was ready, but at that point in time, he wanted to ask her to marry him. Will you marry me? That's four more words. So he waited four more years. And after nine years of silence, this prince took this beautiful girl to the most romantic place in the kingdom. And he looked into her eyes and he said, My darling, I love you. Will you marry me? To which she replied, Pardon me? I'm going to pause until you laugh at that. See, the people at home, you probably didn't hear laughter, but trust me, there was lots of laughter here in this room. You see, silence can be painful. Silence can be painful. See what I mean? It's painful, isn't it? That was only like, I don't know, 10 or 12 seconds of of silence, and you probably thought, what happened to him? (laughs) Did he forget what he was going to say? Is he having another medical thing going on? (laughs) What is wrong with him? Because silence is painful. We even have that phrase, awkward silence, right? You're at a dinner with someone, maybe someone you don't know very well, maybe it's someone you do know well, and you're talking, and you're chatting, and you're telling stories, and all of a sudden... And then you're kind of looking at each other and you feel like, I should say something? Somebody should say something? Because silence can be painful. It can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. You've heard that silence is golden. The truth is, quite often, silence is grueling, especially when you're waiting on important news or a message, when you're waiting on the doctor's office to call you with the results, when you're waiting on the company to call with the job offer, when you're waiting on that important announcement, you're waiting on that return call that is so important, and you're waiting and watching your phone. Silence can be painful. In your Bibles, between the final word in Malachi in the Old Testament, which in the NIV, the word is destruction, and the first word of Matthew in the New Testament, which in the NIV is the word this, about 400 years transpired. And so I don't, I don't know if you still have a paper Bible. Please, I, I hope that you do. That you, I mean, your phone Bible is good, but I hope you have a paper Bible. But if you do, that little thin page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament represents about 400 years years. Did you know that? 400 years. That's amazing. And during that 400 years, for the people of God who looked to the heavens for a word from God, the heavens seemed quiet and still. Humanity apparently didn't get any direct word from God during that 400 years. Now, during that time that intertestamental time there were developments 
That's when Hellenistic Judaism sort of came on the scene as the Greek influence became stronger and stronger. In fact, that's when the common language went from Hebrew to Greek and Aramaic. That's when the synagogue system was established because remember, the Jewish temple had been destroyed right before that and wasn't rebuilt for several centuries. So they established the synagogue system. That's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were probably produced. That's when the extra biblical apocrypha books were written. But as far as we know, no direct word from God. No prophets, no prophecies, no miracles, no revelations, no miracles, nothing. Radio silence, crickets. It's been called 400 years of silence. But to understand this 400 years of silence, it really helps to know the context because this wasn't just four centuries of having no reception to heaven. This was 400 years of anticipation and anxiety. The people of God were waiting on God, wanting to have a word from God, wanting God to intervene in their lives, wanting some good news from God. The rest of the world, although it didn't know it at the time, was also waiting on God. You see, the prophets of old had prophesied. They had predicted that God would intervene, that God would send this Messiah King into the world to save Israel. There are so many examples. Here are just a few. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin or the young girl will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You see, the people were waiting and watching and wondering when God would be with them. When would we see this Messiah King, this deliverer that would save Israel? Jeremiah chapter 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David or from the line of David or the house of David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. The people knew these predictions, these prophecies. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And one more, Isaiah chapter 9, probably one that is a little more familiar to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Before some of these words were used in Christmas carols, these words were seen as important and inspired prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, promises from God that he would intervene and so the people during this 400 years of apparent silence are waiting. They're watching. They're wondering when God would show up. When he would raise up this, this king on which the government 
would rest. This leader, this ruler who would save Israel. And I wonder if every generation that came and went thought, is it going to be now? Is it going to be on our watch? Please, Lord, let it be now. And the silence continued. Now keep in mind what is happening among the Jewish people at the end of the Old Testament. They are in and sort of coming out of Babylonian captivity. And some of them are are starting to get to go back to the land. But then Persia comes in and takes over. So they're under Persian, under the Persian Empire. And then it's not long before the Roman Empire is established and it comes in. and, And so basically God's people are in exile, one form or another, during all of that time. There's oppression, there's injustice. This is a people with really no home, no identity, no, certainly no political power. They've even lost their language. (laughs) And they're ready for God to do something. But every time they cry out, what do they hear? All they hear is the sound of silence, as far as we know. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know what it's like to sit in silence, to wait patiently on God. Maybe you know what it's like to pray, to beg, to plead to God for him to intervene, to do something, to give you a a better life, a a better marriage, a a better future, a better job, to change the the diagnosis or to to use the treatment or to change the, the family or or, or remove the conflict. Maybe you know what it's like just to wait and wait and wait and to continually watch and wonder, when is God going to show up? I need something. I, I need a word. I need a miracle. I need something from heaven. Maybe you know what that's like. And if you do, what I would say to you is, hang on. And open your Bibles. Because into that 400-year period of silence, we get a word from God. Like the calm before the storm. Like the pause before that big moment. The silence gives way to the supernatural. So as the New Testament begins, we hear echoes of the very beginning. The beginning of creation, when God pierced the darkness with his light. So the gospel writer John will use that same framework to introduce to us this word of hope, this word of life. John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Later in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, in the beginning, God said the word and there was light. But in the new beginning, God sent the word to be the light. It wasn't that God just spoke his word. It was that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is so significant because that is when the darkness was pierced. That's when the silence was shattered. That is when hope was born. And so we go to Luke's well-known account 
of that event, that historical event that obviously has incredibly important spiritual ramifications. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the world or all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you've been watching for. He has arrived. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Can you imagine being there to witness this scene? I can't imagine what that must have been like as this angel appears to these shepherds who have no idea. They share this announcement, this news. The heavenly host join them and together they praise God. What a sight that must have been. And what is their announcement? It is that well-known phrase, I bring you good news of great joy for all the world, for all the people. You see, God was acting. The long-awaited Messiah was not just coming to save Israel, he was coming to save the entire world. When God broke the silence, he did it in a big way. The good news that, that Jesus would walk among us, that he would give his life for us, that he would show us, reveal to us the nature of the kingdom of God, how we are to live, that he would be raised from that tomb to give us eternal and abundant life. That is good news of great joy for all the world. And so if you look back in chapter 2 in verse 1, Luke introduces this story in a very interesting way by telling us about Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, issued a decree for the census that took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, which fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. You see, God is always at work. Well, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he won his power basically by defeating all of his rivals in a very bloody civil war. And once he did that, and once he had all the power, he declared himself as the one who brought peace and justice, not just to one corner of the world, but to the world. And so he identified his adopted and now deceased father as divine. And so if your father is divine, what does that make you as his offspring? That makes you a son of God. And so Caesar Augustus presented himself to the world as a son of God that brought peace and justice to the whole world. And he even insisted that people call him Lord. Poets and historians wrote about him. People said he was the savior of the world. I don't think it's a mistake that Luke frames it this way for us. But meanwhile, far away, in that little town of Bethlehem, in that little humble manger, a baby was being born. 
the true Savior of the world, the one that would bring peace and justice to all the earth. God was bringing hope and peace and salvation, not through a harsh, powerful, earthly ruler, but through a humble, sacrificial servant. And he was the one and only Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. You see, the point Luke is making is very clear, and that is the birth of Jesus is the beginning of this ongoing and epic clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. And we still live in that clash, in that tension of those kingdoms, not just in the world, but you probably feel it in your own life sometimes, in your own mind, your own heart, this constant battle, this confrontation between the will of God and the ways of the world. And what Luke is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that Jesus is here to stay, that hope is here to stay, that we no longer have to be hopeless that we no longer have to be lost, that we no longer have to sit in silence and wait. That is the message. If you go to Bethlehem today, you will see people still clinging to this hope, this hope in what happened there some 2,000 years ago. My family and I were blessed enough to visit Bethlehem about a year and a half ago. And we went, I was, I was somewhat surprised. I, I really didn't know what to expect when we went there. I mean, I knew there wouldn't be like a manger, you know, like a barn and a, a, little, a little place for a baby and maybe a cow and a donkey. Near, you know, I knew it wouldn't be like a little nativity set, but I didn't know what to expect. Well, first of all, Bethlehem is in the West Bank. It's Palestinian controlled, and so you have to go through a checkpoint with armed guards there's a fence, a very significant fence or wall around the whole city. And they don't like Israelis, especially Jewish Israelis, to go in there. So we had to leave one guide at the gate and get a new guide when we went into Bethlehem. So we go to the site that is believed to be the place where Jesus was born. And wouldn't you know it, there's a church built on top of it. If you've ever been over there, you know, that's very common. I mean, throughout the ages, that's how they mark significant spots, by building churches on top of them. And so there is the Church of the Nativity built on top of the spot where it is believed Jesus was born. This is the oldest Christian church standing in the world. The original version was actually built in the 4th century, but then it was burned and destroyed, and they rebuilt it in the 6th century. And that's much of what you see, something built in the 6th century. Now, there was modifications and additions, but very old building, the Church of the Nativity. And to get into this church, to see the site where Jesus was born, you go through this very small door, a four-foot door. You have to bend down to get through there. It's called the Door of Humility. And there's been speculation on why that door is so small to keep people when their wagons out you know, from coming in and, and looting the place or to keep people off their horses from coming in or basically as a symbol of the humility of Christ. But isn't it fitting that you have to stoop down, that you have to bend down to go into the place where the humble king was born? And once you go inside, the very spot is actually below ground. 
under what they call the altar area of, of the church. It would be like up here. But you have to go through this, this little stairway down into this crypt or this little basement area. And the day we went, it was very warm. It was very humid. It was very, uh, you know, sort of condensed. And, and not at all what, what I expected. And so you go down these steps through this little doorway, and then you're in this narrow passageway where there is uh, what I would call maybe like a shrine. And then below the shrine, engraved on the marble floor, is a 14-point star with a phrase in Latin, here Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary. And the 14 points represent the three generations of uh, or the three sets of 14 generations of Jesus's genealogy. Lots of history, obviously, lots of symbolism there. And what I noticed immediately as this place is designated as the place where Jesus was born is that people who visit this place are transformed. First of all, they, they stoop down sometimes even lie down to get as close as they can to this place. And they put their hand at the middle of that star in that circle, the very spot where it is believed Jesus was born. And there's this deep sense of reverence that comes over them, but also it's weird because it's balanced with this deep sense of joy and happiness. It's like, it's like this sense of peace and pleasure washes over them, and they want to take pictures and they want to remember it. And so we witness several people doing that and then when they sort of moved along I thought well I, I want to get down there and touch it too <laughs> and so I stooped down there and put my hand on it and just sort of reflected in that moment and as I touched the spot designated as the place where Jesus was born where hope was born where everything changed that's what I thought about first I thought isn't it appropriate that you have to bow down to approach the true king of kings. And then I thought, what happened in that place? I thought about the significance of what happened in that place. How everything, literally everything, changed because of what God did in that place. It was powerful. It was a sacred moment. But 2,000 years ago, what happened in that place didn't really impress too many people. Many people saw no significance in what was happening because they expected a different kind of Messiah. They expected the Messiah. Remember, they were watching, they were waiting, but their Messiah was supposed to be from a different place, in a different form, with a different agenda. However, there were some. There were some who were watching and waiting and they recognize the significance. And so Luke continues in chapter 2. Mary and Joseph go back home. And 40 days after Jesus is born, they take him to the temple to be consecrated as the firstborn, to make a sacrifice on his behalf. And at the temple, they run into a couple of different people who recognize the significance of what is happening. So we continue in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation or the comforting of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got it. He was watching and waiting. And when he saw it, he knew it. God was working in his heart, in his life. He acknowledged what God was doing by bringing Jesus into this world. Then they come across someone else, an elderly prophetess named Anna. And like Simeon, she too had been waiting and watching. And finally, when hope was born, she recognized how blessed she was to see it. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. You can almost hear the sigh of relief by these two. It's like this huge exhale. It's happening. After all the years of waiting and watching, after all the years of silence, finally hope had arrived in the form of Jesus. Nothing would ever be the same, and they knew it. They knew it. You see, this story that Luke gives us, inspired by the Spirit, this story is about confirmation. It is about hope. You see, Confirmation from the angel to the shepherds. Confirmation from the shepherds to Joseph and Mary. Confirmation from God to Simeon and Anna. Confirmation from Simeon and Anna to Joseph and Mary about Jesus. If God was silent before, now he is announcing to the world what he is doing. That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The word had become flesh. And because that happened, there are incredible implications and ramifications for us even today. This isn't just something that the world celebrates once a year. This isn't just something that that we acknowledge happened as a historical event. This changes everything. So embrace this story and let it be your story. The truth is you don't have to live in darkness. You don't have to wait and suffer in silence. Anything this world throws at you, anything, it's not big enough to eclipse the love, the grace, the truth, the light of God as demonstrated in Jesus. See, here's what I want you to know today. As we reflect on this important story in Scripture, Here's what I want you to know. When life gets tough, and it will, and it does, and you know that, 
When life gets tough, don't lose hope. Find Jesus. Like those shepherds, go and find Jesus. Like Simeon, like Anna, find Jesus. Go to him. And when you do, do what they did. Did you notice what the angels, the heavenly host, what they did? Did you notice what Simeon did? Did you notice what Anna did? When they recognized Jesus, when they acknowledged what God was doing, they praised God. That's what all of them did. They praised and thanked God. You see, the hope that Jesus provides should be an anchor for our souls. That's what we've called this series. It comes from Hebrews. The hope that Jesus provides should be an anchor for our souls. It should anchor us into the great truth and the great promises of God. But it should also compel us to live lives of hope, which mean we live lives of, lives of constant praise and gratitude to God for being the one who gives us that hope. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. And yet God sees us in our need. And he doesn't just speak a word. He sends his word to put on flesh and walk among us. And because he did, everything has changed. Kelly James was a 48-year-old landscaper who loved to climb mountains. So several years ago, he and two of his buddies went to Oregon and climbed Mount Hood. They got to the summit, and as they were coming down, a huge blizzard rolled in, and they were trapped. So they sought shelter in a snow cave. Kelly was able to take out his cell phone and call his family and tell them what was going on, but the conditions were so bad that rescue workers couldn't do their job. And the three climbers ended up perishing. They died. Very unfortunate. In an interview on the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric, Kelly's widow, Karen, talked about their shared faith in Jesus Christ, something you don't hear on mainstream TV very often. And Katie Couric heard her talk about her faith, and so she asked her, well, now that this has happened to your husband, are you disappointed in God? Is your faith still strong in God? She said, absolutely. She said, I remember not long ago, Kelly and I were watching TV, and out of nowhere, he said, I can't wait to go to heaven. And she said, what? She said, what they were watching had nothing to do with heaven or death or anything, and that just came out of the blue. And he said, I can't wait to go to heaven. He said, yeah, I think it'll be really cool. She responded to him, well, well, let's wait on that. Can we hold off on that a little while? She said, I take great comfort in knowing that he was ready for heaven and that God was ready for him. And Couric asked at the end of the interview, well, how do you think your husband will want to be remembered? She said, he'll want to be remembered as someone whose faith was in Jesus Christ. And then she told this little story. She said, when Kelly was young, or since he was young as a child, he had this little manger Christmas ornament she said it was just this little plastic manger but it was important to him and every year we put it on the tree in fact we had a tradition that our son Jack and Kelly put that manger on the tree together every year she said this year at Christmas we are putting that manger on the tree because she said this because we know 
that the baby that was born in the manger is the reason that we have strength. It's the reason that we have the strength to get through this difficult time. That's the reason. And Kelly, her husband, would want us to have that strength that comes from him. You see, what happened in that manger some 2,000 years ago is the reason that you can have strength and hope. Because God sent his word to become flesh, to walk among us. He gave us the king of kings that truly brought peace and justice for all the world. And he sent him to the cross to give his life, that perfect life, that sinless life, to give it as an offering, a humble sacrifice on our behalf so that our sins would be forgiven that our sins would no longer stand between us and God, that we could have access to God, that we could be in the presence of a holy God, as unholy as we are. And that God would not leave him in that tomb after Jesus was killed, but he would raise him to life, just as he will raise each and every person who is in Christ. You see, that's why we have hope. That's why we have strength. Our hope is in Christ and in him alone. So as you reflect on that great truth and what it means for you, what difference does it make? What change does it prompt in your life, in your thinking, in your perspective, in the way you make decisions, in your relationships? Maybe your choice to give your life to Christ. Maybe you haven't made that choice. Start there. Act from a place of faith. I believe that happened 2,000 years ago, and I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and my faith is in him, and I want to be in Christ. Today, you can be baptized into Christ. Or maybe it's making some kind of change. It's repenting, it's confessing, it's saying, you know, the track I'm on, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm living, it's not a a God-honoring way to do things. I want to honor the one who gave so much for me. I want to live with strength and hope, and I can't find those right now. I'm sitting in silence, and I need help. There's something we can do. We want to help you. You can go to our website, go to our prayer page, or if you're here today, you can come forward. Remember, our hope is in one place. No, our hope is in one person, in Christ alone. Let's stand and sing. In Christ.